Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Björnsdottir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. Today's guest, Ursula K. Le Guin, is the author of more than 60 books of fiction, poetry, children's literature, drama, essay, criticism, and translation. Her awards include a National Book Award, a Penn Malamud, six Nebulas, five Hugos, and 21 Locus Awards. In the year 2000, the Library of Congress named Le Guin a living legend for her significant contributions to America's cultural heritage. And in 2014, the National Book Foundation awarded her the Medal of Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. 
whose past winners include Toni Morrison, John Ashbery, and Joan Didion. While best known for her science fiction and fantasy novels, Le Guin has a long and storied career as a nonfiction writer. Collections of her essays and talks include the Locus Award-winning Cheek by Jowl, Talks and Essays on How and Why Fantasy Matters, Dancing at the Edge of the World, Thoughts on Words, Women, Places, The Language of the Night, Essays on Fantasy and Science Fiction, and The Wave in the Mind, Talks and Essays on the Writer, the Reader, and the Imagination. She's also an ongoing and frequent contributor of Remarkable Book Reviews for The Guardian newspaper. Ursula K. Le Guin is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest collection of essays just out from Small Beer Press entitled Words Are My Matter, Writing About Life and Books, 2000-2016, a collection of essays, talks, introductions to beloved books, book reviews, and journal entries from her stay at the Hedgebrook Writing Residency. The topics of this collection range widely from thoughts on the work of Philip K. Dick, H.G. Wells, and Stanislaw Lem, to reviews of books by Doris Lessing, Jose Saramago, Margaret Atwood, and Roberto Bolaño, to meditations on the future of books, on the vital importance of Roe v. Wade, to learning to write science fiction from Virginia Woolf. Publishers Weekly says Words Are My Matter reaches deeply into the nexus of politics and language, women's issues, the effects of technology, and books as commerce. Everywhere something to think about. Kirkus Review calls it a collection notable for its wit, unvarnished opinions, and passion. And Margaret Atwood says the book is infused with Le Guin's wise, informed, elegant, and occasionally testy voice. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Ursula K. Le Guin. Thank you, David. So this is the third time you and I have talked on the radio, the first two times at the radio station and, and the third time here at your house. And the first we talked about the craft of fiction writing, and the second we talked about writing poetry. So when Small Beer Press announced its release of Words Are My Matter, it seemed only natural to complete the circle of genres to meet again and talk about nonfiction and the art of literary criticism. But it's interesting, however, that when a reader opens Words Are My Matter for the first time, the first thing we encounter is a poem, followed then by the first sentence of the foreword where you say, I seldom have as much pleasure in reading nonfiction as I do a poem or a story. So can you elaborate a little bit about this and, and why you open the book with sort of an interrogation of your interest uh, or lack of interest in nonfiction? Well, I'm not sure I can explain it. Um, I guess I felt a little guilty about this my fourth or fifth book of nonfiction, but that, in fact, I don't think of myself as a nonfiction writer, you know. I suppose it was a sort of a backhanded apology in a way, saying, well, here I am doing this again, you know, even though I keep saying I, uh, it's not my thing. It's not really my shtick. Yeah. But, but here I am waving it around. So as a reader, what is, what is the nonfiction that you gravitate toward? Um, what in your mind elevates a work of nonfiction to a type of art that is compelling to you? Well... It's just, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, I have to go down to a slightly lower level of choice. It's just what I find I can read. And this partly has to do, I think, with old age. Uh, I need a narrative. But I've always really needed a narrative. I'm just no good at abstract thinking. Um, so 
that means that I tend to read biography and autobiography and uh, sciences such as geology that, that sort of tell a story through history, you know, and so on, and, and history and such, and not very much uh, abstract or theoretical. Or I have I have real trouble with philosophy. Hmm. I, I you know I I took it as a freshman in college. We all had to, and I, I liked it, but it never would stick. Yeah, I can't keep it in my head. There has to be a story, and if it's a parable, then I remember it. it well, in your in your forward, you 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 said that which you've alluded to here also, that writing fiction and poetry is more of a natural act for you than, than writing oh, yeah. nonfiction that Much. comes yeah. from a, a, a genuine desire and you're fulfilled in the process of, of writing it and that you're able to judge its honesty and its quality in a way that you're not able to judge when you're writing nonfiction. Maybe the sense of anxiety around um, do you know as much about the topic as the people reading it? You yeah. suggested in the in the foreword. Yeah. So how do you go about when you're writing a nonfiction essay, um, assessing when it's done, and um, finding that solid ground when you start from a, a a place maybe of more uncertainty than you do when you're writing a short story or a or a poem? Uh, yeah. The uh, getting started is hard. I throw away. It's endless first pages or first three pages or something of, of not, you know, I'm just kind of grinding the gears until I can get the machinery going on a nonfiction piece often. And as for knowing when it's done, that's a real poser sometimes. Um, I wrote a a piece for a talk years ago, uh, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, and that thing Every time I gave it as a talk, the audience would give me so much feedback that I had to go and rewrite the article. And, I, you know, so it got rewritten and rewritten. And finally, I just said, enough, I have to stop rewriting it and published it as it was. Uh, but that, that means that you don't really finish something. You just have to stop. Yeah. And this, I, th about anything that is a sort of a matter of opinion, I feel like you, you really sort of have to try to leave the door open at the end of the piece uh, because some news is going to come through that door and you know, oh, I never thought of that, you know. Will you name one particular essay in the book entitled Living in a Work of Art as, your, as perhaps your favorite piece in the collection? And it is one of the rare pieces in the collection that wasn't commissioned that you right. you wrote um, from because you wanted to write it yeah. on the principle of writing it. Yeah. Uh, you say something very interesting about the process of writing this piece. You say, when I can use prose, as I do in writing stories, as a direct means or form of thinking, not as a way of saying something I know or believe, not as a vehicle for a message, but as an exploration, a voyage of discovery resulting in something I didn't know before I wrote it, then I feel that I'm using it properly. And I would love it if you might tell us a little bit about the process of exploration in putting together living in a work of art, because I know as a reader of it, one of the pleasures was the sense of discovering things as you were discovering them in the actual essay. You know, that, that's probably that piece is about as near autobiography as I'm going to come in many ways. Um, 
and it goes back to my childhood. I left that house never to return permanently when I was 17. So it's a long time ago. Uh, so part of what's going on there is is uh, an old woman kind of exploring her childhood and saying, what, what was going on? And what about this place where I lived, you know, which simply was home and uh, was the universe for me when I was little? Um, and just trying to sort of, that again, the only word I can use is explore, explore what it was like, and then try to explore the the ramifications and meanings of that, what it maybe did to me, you know, why why it, it helped shaped me, which I know I just I know it did. Oh, but then there was the simple pleasure of writing about the house, which I loved so dearly, uh, and just sort of uh, being there and, and thinking about it because. That was that was nice. You lived in a house built by a, rem, a remarkable architect, and yes, um, one of the things that stuck with me in reading it was you talking about how it feels like the house was built in anticipation of its future inhabitants, as if um, a the imagination of the architect is creating a, a space for people that he hasn't he, yet met. He, that's how Maybeck talked about it. He he, it seems as if he sort of imagined. It was a very small family that the house was built for, but he imagined a family living there. He was not expressing his ego, as so many architects do and are praised for doing now. It was sort of anything but. And yet, uh, Maybachs are instantly recognizable, most of them, unless it's a very good imitation. Yeah. Um, or Julia, what's her name, that, that really kind of thought the way Maybach did. Anyway... Um, That when when I realized that I, I, one thing I didn't know when I started writing that was that there that Maybach did express himself quite clearly about what he saw as his goals as an architect and that was very useful to me and very interesting. I didn't know it. He was a quiet person, and uh, you know did not put the, the, the ego was not sort of huge and formidable the way it is with all our star our star architects as they call them. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because we've talked before when we were talking about fiction and poetry, the role of the ego and the role of the intellect for you being secondary in service of something more mysterious. Like when we've talked right. about the the music and the meaning of the music behind the words and the syntax, the wave of the mind that Virginia Woolf, Woolf mm. talks about and um, that we talked about in your book, Steering the Craft, but also like the way that Taoism informed some of your poetry um, and I wondered if that's part of where the split comes inside of your own mind around nonfiction, when so much of the nonfiction is geared towards, as you say, saying what you believe or think rather than... Yeah, explicitly. You, mm -hmm. you can't sneak around and, and imply it. You, you kind of have to say it straight out, and that, that tends to lead me into, uh, oh, sometimes ranting and, and, you know, and being over-explicit and being rather defensive about it and... All kinds of things, which I, you know, I, I look and I think, oh, <laughs> but, well, if we were to, if I were to choose the most polar opposite piece in the collection from living in a work of art, if we look at living in the, a work of art of us getting to witness you exploring this architecture and what it means to you, and discovering what it means as you write, 
Um, the, the opposite piece seems to me to be the speech you gave for the National Book Foundation medal <laughs> in 2014, because it is about, they do ask you to deliver a message. Um, and you worked on it without any assurance that you knew what you were saying was right. I think they just asked me to say thank you. <laughs> but, really? And I, and I, but it is often, you know, an opportunity like that is if you got a message. Yeah, it's it's a chance. This and is they, the time. you got six minutes. They can't stop you. <laughs> well, I, I read that you said that you you said that you spent six months reworking this six minute speech. Mm-hmm. Felt more nervous than you felt since junior high when you were giving a speech in junior high school. Can you talk a little bit about some of that anxiety and uncertainty that motivated this uh, reworking of the speech prior to it happening? Well, okay, I figure, okay, I got six minutes. And I am talking to some of the powers that be in American literature in that room in New York. Because, and of course, all my publishers were there. And there was an Amazon table and, you know, the rest of it. So I felt a, an onus upon myself to say something meaningful and useful. But, you know, okay, how to say it in a, in a very brief time and without just, without it being just a rant. Um, because, of course, my feelings about what what's been happening in literature are not entirely positive, I, I, and particularly... Um, some aspects of publishing uh, strike me as just absolutely going the wrong direction. You know, I don't want to talk about that. And then there's the whole sense that we all have, and of course we have it more intensely since the election, of the times are changing very fast, and they're very unpredictable and pretty scary. And, okay, this is whatever people may think happens to the arts in in bad times, um, the verbal arts at least tend to become very important. They don't depend so much on materials and so on as, as painting. And, and, and I just, I mean, you can say things to each other. And it gets really important what you say in, in the bad times. Um, well, I'm thinking of my, you know, the book that has been so important to me, the Lao Tzu's Dao De Jing, is the product of a very bad time in China. Things really were, uh, it's called the time of the warring states, I believe, and it was like civil war and invasion, and he was, in fact, going into exile, is the, the sort of mythological story that that's how he wrote the book, before he crossed over into the outer world, he, he uh, took a night or two and left this book behind. And that's kind of, okay, so you do your testimony when things are getting bad. And I wanted to do that. But of course, it wasn't easy. I, I had to figure out what I really, really wanted to say and how to say it. And for people who might not be aware of your speech, this speech went very big the next day. It became quite a viral sensation around the globe, really. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, you know, it was the 15 minutes of fame. It really, I was completely taken aback because I really thought nobody would be listening except the people in that room. But I forgot that a lot of the people in that room were journalists. Yeah. 
and that they knew a story when they heard one. <laughs> well, when, when we think of the, the positioning of the mind and the ego in relationship to, to um, art, and we return to the, the, the poem at the beginning, the mind is still, it seems like a very appropriate opening. The mind is still the gallant books of lies are never quite enough. Ideas are a whirl of mazy flies over the pig's trough. That feels like a very um, uh, appropriate opening to words are, are my matter. Well, I hope so because since I took the, I put the poem because of course the title comes from the poem. It's the first line. Yeah. So, uh, and I hoped it would sort of make sense in context. It's yeah. an old poem, written quite a long time ago. If we're, if we're looking at the different ways your work is received in relationship to ideas, you have this really interesting essay about The Dispossessed, one of your more, more well-known books, where you talk about some of the scholarly work written about The Dispossessed, um, and that you resist the idea that novels spring from an idea. Um, and you also resist the idea that science fiction is the literature of ideas, that you'd rather be praised for your efforts to resist the didactic than for your failures to do so. Did did this arise from a dissatisfaction uh, in a way on how the dispossessed was being discussed in scholarly works or in the world at large? No, not really, but but just as because actually th that essay was written as an introduction that the the, uh, the editors asked for to a book of essays about the novel dispossessed, and uh, I was kind of amazed to discover that most of those discussions were not only highly intelligent and, and professional, but uh, they were simpatico. They, 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 they were using feeling as well as idea. They were, I have nothing against ideas, per se, it's, but when they become didactic or, or self-righteous or just opinions, then they get tiresome. What I was kind of struggling against was not so much the reception of that particular book, although it has often been treated as if there was nothing in it but ideas, but that there's a tendency to um, treat not only science fiction but all literature. Um, the way it's taught often is sort of, you know, what, does, what is the author saying and what is his message? You know. You... you <laughs> you, just, you just can't look for the book. And, and any any work of art consists of more than than verbal thoughts that can be paraphrased verbally. There's something more going on, and it's got to be included in the criticism. You can't reduce uh, any novel or poem to to an intelligible intelligible single meaning. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Ursula K. Le Guin about her latest book from Small Beer Press, Words Are My Matter. In, in 2002, Ursula, you gave a talk at a meeting of Oregon Literary Arts called Operating Instructions, and I was hoping you could read the two opening paragraphs from that talk. The Operating Instructions. A poet has been appointed ambassador. A playwright is elected president. Construction workers stand in line with office managers to buy a new novel. 
adults seek moral guidance and intellectual challenge in stories about warrior monkeys, one-eyed giants, and crazy knights who fight windmills. Literacy is considered a beginning, not an end. Well, maybe in some other country, but not this one. In America, the imagination is generally looked on as something that might be useful when the TV is out of order. Poetry and plays have no relation to practical politics. Novels are for students, housewives, and other people who don't work. Fantasy is for children and primitive peoples. Literacy is so you can read the operating instructions. I think the imagination is the single most useful tool mankind possesses. It beats the opposable thumb. I can imagine living without my thumbs, but not without my imagination. You've written here and elsewhere really wonderfully about an American-specific fear of imagination. And in, in one of our past talks, I mistakenly confused this with our resistance to considering genre literature as, or genre fiction as literature, and wondered then if now that genre fiction was finally breaking down the walls, if that meant that America was coming to terms with its imagination in a healthy way. Well, there's a relation. There is. Okay. Yeah. yeah you, you, at sure. the time, you pushed back a little bit and said that the question of America and imagination is bigger than that question yeah. and broader. And so I was wondering, because we didn't really go further with it at the time, if you could maybe talk a little bit about the American spirit and and it's and where you think this fear of the imaginative spirit comes from? Yeah, well, that 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 old essay is called uh, "Are Americans Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons?" Or, yeah, that's yeah. one of them. Um, and the, it was written specifically about the the, the American tendency to uh, push all all fantasy, all highly imaginative fiction into a sort of little it's it's for kids or it's it's unimportant because it isn't about what the stock market is doing today you know so on. it's a sort of a immediate profit attitude towards life that uh, <laughs> well dickens <laughs> talked about it a good deal in his novel hard times when he's making fun of the of the completely uh, the realistic businessman who can't think about anything but the but uh, immediate profit, uh, you know, and um, therefore loses any sense of th really of there being any future uh, because he's got to think about this quarter and, and making money, you know, and so on. And uh, this mindset, as it comes through in education, Dickens was very clear about that too, uh, is very is crippling to to a child's uh, whole development because the imagination is simply a very large part of, of the way we, the way our mind functions. And to sort of stint or stunt or be contemptuous of <laughs> the, the imagination is a terrible thing to do. Uh, particularly to a to a young developing mind who needs to be able to think about anything, you know, and imagine things, and 
and get clear about the difference between what's imagined and what's real. Um, I think children are much better at that than many adults give them credit for. Uh, they know when it's a fairy tale, you know. They also often know when it's a lie. Um, but still, uh, as things get complicated, uh, the both reason and imagination need training. They need exercise just as much as the body does. And we, we tend to uh, train some of the rational faculties, but to not. Less, less and less is, is the imaginative given any, any place in American education, and I think that's very scary. In, in the same talk, operation, operating instructions, you have this, you say this very uh, interesting thing about home that really fascinated me, that home isn't your family, it isn't your house where you live, but that home is imaginary. And by imaginary, you don't mean illusory, but in some respects more real than any other place. You say home imagined comes to be, it is real, realer than any other place, but you can't get to it unless your people show you how to imagine it, whoever your people are. And I was hoping you might unpack that a little for us, the Ooh. ways human, <laughs> humans imagine home or create groups and invent ways to live. It, it feels like then we, if we think about it that way, that story and imagination then is, is something evolutionarily um, vital to, yeah. to us. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think part of what I was trying to say in that particular passage was, uh, well, the function of myth uh, in what we call primitive, what we used to call primitive societies, the function of myth, real myth, as told seriously by serious grown-ups to others, uh, one of its major functions seems to be uh, telling each other who we are. Um, let's say we are the Dine. Uh, and a very large part of that is where do we live? Where we came from, where we live now, and if, we're, if we have a further home to go to, uh, what might it be? And there's, there's, there's this sort of whole thing of placing yourself among your people in a certain context on the earth. And it seems to take um, lively effort of the imagination to, to accomplish this. So all myths are, in a sense, unrealistic. And yet they are, they're trying to get to the heart of one's reality as a human being who is a member of a community, uh, which is kind of an important job. And, and right after this investigation of the imagination in the book, we, we, we come across a talk you gave at the Conference on Literature and Ecology in 2005 called The Beast in the Book, which where you talk about imagination and relationship to, to nature and the non-human other. And I was hoping you, you would read a brief excerpt from, from this as well, if you didn't mind. Um, the, first three the first three complete paragraphs on page 27. Mm -hmm. 
Why do most children and many adults respond both to real animals and to stories about them, fascinated by and identifying with creatures which our dominant religions and ethics consider mere objects for human use? No longer working with us in industrial societies, but mere raw material for our food, subjects of scientific experiments to benefit us, entertaining curiosities of the zoo and the TV nature program, pets are kept to improve our psychological health. Perhaps we give animal stories to children and encourage their interest in animals because we see children as inferior, mentally primitive, not yet fully human. So we see pets and zoos and animal stories as quote, natural steps on the child's way up to adult exclusive humanity. Rungs on the ladder from mindless, helpless babyhood to the full glory of intellectual maturity and mastery. Ontogeny, recapitulating phylogeny in terms of the great chain of being. But what is it the kid is after? The baby, wild with excitement at the sight of a kitten, the six-year-old spelling out Peter Rabbit. The twelve-year-old weeping as she reads Black Beauty. What is it the child perceives that her whole culture denies? We've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from her latest book, Words Are My Matter. You, you talk about the coexistence of, of animal and human in story in folk tales and fairy tales and fables and about how only in the post-industrial age are animal tales considered only for children. And it makes me think about one of the contemporary taboos in literary fiction, one that you see actually explicitly prohibited in the guidelines of many literary magazines, that they don't want to see stories that have talking animals or that are told from the imagined perspective of, of animals. Um, do you think this limiting of, of the animal to children in the post-industrial age do you think it's a post-industrial phenomenon, this limiting of animals to children, or is it an American post-industrial phenomenon, this, this oh, limiting? I think, no, I think it's, it's not just American. This, this is pretty much uh, European literature, too. And um, the thing is, we don't live with animals as we did. I mean, the, the relationship has changed immensely in the last 200 years. <laughs> you didn't used to be able to get away from the animals. They were part of your life. They were absolutely essential to your well-being as fellow workers, you know, in the field and as your your meat supply, your food supply, your wool supply, and so on. Um, now we, we get all that at this enormous distance, and there are people who... Well, there are people who can't be in the room with an animal. Now, what would they have done 100 years ago? I really don't know. Uh, they would have had to like it or lump it, I guess. Um, and, you know, children grow up without ever touching anything, any living being uh, except another human being. And that, <laughs> I mean, no wonder we're a bit alienated. Um, we, we, we can live in the cities as if there was, as if there were no other living beings on earth. And no wonder people get indifferent and, and think it doesn't matter if you 
extinguish a species. You know, you have to be in touch, and we're not. And I just think <laughs> literature, kids' stories, animal stories, are an imaginative way at least of being in touch and that therefore they're very important. But uh, <laughs> my, my opinion is not shared by uh, a lot of literary people. They, I think literary people tend to assume that if it's about animals, it's uh, probably sentimental. And sentimentality is the worst possible sin. So there you go. Well, here at your house during this conversation, another author has been coming in and out of the room, your, your cat, Pard, <laughs> who, who has a book out himself. Um, so can, can we talk a little bit about Pard's nonfiction? <laughs> well, yes. Okay. Now you see, I shamelessly, and I, I, really there's a shamelessness to it. I, I pretended that I was Pard, and I wrote... I wrote an autobiography. Um, and, you know, I say shameless because obviously what what I think and feel is immensely different from what Pard really thinks and feels. And I, I just humanized him completely. Um, but that I hope that's not a, a, what is called colonialism. I hope I'm not just co-opting Pard because I really have a great deal of respect for him. Um, it's a, an attempt to share with others what I do understand or can guess about his feelings, and no more than that, you know. That the, This whole thing about writing about the other, ooh, animals are just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, you, you bring up a book that was really important to me when I was growing up, the T.H. Uh, White's The Sword and the Stone. Oh. Um, and the, I think part of the reason it was an important book for me was all of those times Merlin was training the future King Arthur by transforming him into different animals. It is absolutely wonderful. It is, it's a, that's one of the, the best examples of that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is that... It got changed when it was incorporated into the Once and Future King. Oh, really? The f it's the first book of that uh, big book, and it's he left out some of the very best stuff that's in the Sword and the Stone. So you have to you have to get the old book. I the actually think that I read that's probably Once and Future. Have. I think I read Once and Future King. Oh well, then then you. <laughs> I'll lend <laughs> so you. I, I need to go back. I'll lend you a copy of the Sword and Stone <laughs> because. Uh, he cut some things and he introduced others. And uh, they, it was most people who know about both books agreed that it was a mistake. He got to ranting a bit, you know. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, later you say, we human beings have made a world reduced to ourselves and our artifacts, but we aren't made for it, which feels kind of like a tragic horror story of sorts that we've created a world and then a literature about that world that we actually aren't s suited to live in. Well, we're suited to live in it, but but it's it's such a small part of the world we could be living in. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It makes it less of a horror story and more of a just a kind of a existential mistake. Well, and then I wonder taking that a step further if maybe one of the biases against science fiction and fantasy is that 
there's the elevation of the non-human. Oh, yeah. Whether it's an alien or, or an animal. And then the decentralization of humanity with regards to intelligence, because intelligence isn't just shared by our species in, yeah. in so many of these stories. Oh, yeah. I think you're, you're right right on it there. There's, there's real resistance to this. And it's, it, that's kind of part of a lot of the resistance to science. Because science simply moves us, you know, not just Copernicus. Most sciences move us away from the center of things because we aren't, uh, you know. And you, you find out how unimaginably old just the Earth is. And that's nothing compared to the galaxy. And, you know, it's <laughs> you, you get sort of dethroned, you know. And, yeah. and really a lot of people can't bear it. They hate it. It, it makes them feel feel alienated, and, and that's the pity of it, because if they could get into it, what you end up with is a much deeper sense of identification with all these marvelous processes that are going on around us all the time that we're part of, all of us. You, you write a lot about gender, sexism, feminism, and gendered literature in this collection. And there's a talk you gave at Winter Fish Trap, the gathering in Joseph, Oregon, called What Women Know, where you resist making a cult of women's knowledge, of associating women with the instinctual, with nature, with the dark, because it reinforces the masculinist idea of women as more primitive. Mm -hmm. um, reading this, I felt a sort of subterranean conversation going on between what women know as an essay, and the other essay we were just talking about, The Beast in the Book, uh, both of them dealing with the human relationship to nature in, in some respects. Um, the, the second being a call to bring the non-human other, to bring nature and animals back into literature, but the first to decouple the idea that nature is the realm of women. Um, instead, you, you imagine a world where men spend time in the darkness and that women can go up into the light, that women can rightfully claim their place in the world of ideas and in, of reason um, and action. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit more about that, about the gendered nature of, of nature? I'm not sure if I have much to... It, because it's so puzzling to me that... that uh, well... I suppose in some ways it comes down to this, the brute and simple fact that a woman conceives, carries a child, and buries it. And they, they perform this enormous natural act which men can't. And so how much of this is male compensation? Uh, how much of a lot of human behavior is sort of male compensation? for sort of claiming generative power as the only power uh, and calling any other power or ability inferior. And yeah, that is, of course, a theme that, it, that goes through a lot of my writing because it goes through a lot of our lives. In, in previous conversations with you, we've talked about um, the erasure of women writers, um, either not entering the canon or, or not being considered for the canon. And we've mentioned, um, Grace Paley since mm. she passed away. Uh, and then we also talked a little bit about CJ Cherry 
in <laughs> relationship to William Gibson, both very accomplished at the time and winning awards, and one is remembered and one isn't. So I was happy to see your essay in Words Are My Matter called Disappearing Grandmothers, where you look at four ways women are erased from the canon or diminished in the conversation of literature, um, denigration, omission, exception, and disappearance. And I was hoping you would read the exception section, mm-hmm. um, which is on page 90. Exception. A novel by man is very seldom discussed with any reference to the author's gender. A novel by a woman is very frequently discussed with reference to her gender. The norm is male. The woman is an exception to the norm from which she is excluded. Exception and exclusion are practiced both in criticism and in reviewing. A critic forced to admit that, say, Virginia Woolf is a great English novelist may take pains to show her as an exception, a wonderful fluke. Techniques of exception and exclusion are manifold. The woman writer is found not to be in the mainstream of English novels. Her writing is unique, but has no influence on later writers. She is the object of a cult. She is a charming, elegant, poignant, sensitive, fragile, hothouse flower that should not be seen as competing with the rugged, powerful, masterful vigor of the male novelist. James Joyce was almost instantly canonized. Wolfe was either excluded from the canon or admitted admitted grudgingly and with reservations for decades. It's quite arguable that To the Lighthouse, with its subtle and effective narrative techniques and devices, has been far more influential on later novel writing than Ulysses, which is a monumental dead end. Joyce, choosing silence, exile, cunning, led a sheltered life, taking responsibility for nothing but his own writing and career. Wolfe led a fully engaged life in her own country, in an extraordinary circle of intellectually, sexually, and politically active people. She knew, read, reviewed, and published other authors all her grown life. Joyce is the fragile person, Wolfe the tough one. Joyce is the cult object and the fluke. Wolf, the continuously fertile influence central to the 20th century novel. But centrality is the last thing accorded a woman by the cannoneers. Women must be left on the margins. Even when a woman novelist is admitted to be a first-rate artist, the techniques of exclusion still operate. Jane Austen is vastly admired. Yet... She's less often considered as an exemplar than as unique, inimitable, a wonderful fluke. She cannot be disappeared, but she is not fully included. Denigration, omission, and exception during a writer's lifetime are preparations for her disappearance after her death. We've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from Words Are My Matter, just out from Small Beer Press. You, you took the title, Disappearing Grandmothers, from an, uh, 
something to do with Wallace Stegner that when you related the Wallace Stegner story was quite shocking to hear. And I I was surprised I'd never heard it before, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Wallace Stegner did to uh, Mary Foote. Well, sort of basically, Mary Foote was a novelist and short story writer of no particular literary distinction, but some, some popularity and, and, um, she wrote some very good stories, but fairly well known in her own lifetime, which was uh, basically uh, two generations before Wallace Stegner's. She wrote uh, a very fine autobiography, which was not published during her lifetime. I believe I'm not quite sure I got my facts all straight here at the moment. Anyway. Uh, Stegner was given a copy of this book, whether it was yet in print or not, I don't know. I think not. By the grandchildren of Mary Foote, Mary Halleck Foote. And he took it as the basis. He he built his novel, uh, Angle of Repose, on it. Indeed, I believe he took the title from the book because that's a, a geologist's term. It's, it's the angle of a hill in which a rock can come to rest. Uh, beautiful title. And the only credit he gave to Mary Halleck Foote was, was to thank her grandchildren for the loan of their grandmother. He didn't even name her. Hmm. And I, I, I hold this as unforgivable. I, I cannot forgive Wallace Stegner, who was... Very well known, very popular, very much adored by the intelligentsia, who, who could easily have afforded to give credit where credit would do, and he didn't, and uh, I do not forgive. Yeah. Back when we were talking about your imagining of the in, inner life of your cat, um, and maybe some of the possible pitfalls of trying to to imagine it about writing across difference. Um, you participated in a project called Getting It Right, where authors were asked to pick an out-of-print book that they felt particularly deserved to be back in print. And you chose Charles L. McNichol's book, Crazy Weather, a book you read as a teenager and then later, 70, some 70 years later. Um, <laughs> and it raises some interesting questions about writing across difference, given that McNichols is white and he's writing about the Mojave people and their myths. And writing across difference has been a hot topic in the literary world the last couple of years, and most notably lately, Lionel Shriver's notorious speech where she asserts her right to write about whatever she wants, regardless of how it is received. And she gives this speech provocatively while wearing a Mexican sombrero. Um, so uh, I, as part of this sort of hot topic and ongoing conversation, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on writing across difference, writing as a different race or gender or otherwise. And what some of the risks or potential rewards are of of, of taking those risks? Oh, David, that's that's a real can of worms. People have been talking about what I met at first called colonialism years ago, twenty five, thirty years ago. Uh, how far can you speak for a person of a culture not your own? I mean, after all, my father was an anthropologist. And, he ran smack into this. Um, 
how when when does an attempt to understand become co-optation? Um, and this was, of course, was extremely uh, egregiously visible in when white people uh, wrote in the person of Indians from Fenmore Cooper on. Uh, that they were co-opting the voice of the Indians, who had no literary voice at that time, but certainly had their own, uh, what we have to call literature, their, their oral literature, and their own voice and their own opinions. The, those went unheard. They had to be interpreted through the whites. And this goes on. Men have been speaking for women for thousands of years uh, when women had no voice whatever. Um, in in literature or anywhere else, and they it, it, that still goes on. But then, okay, well, if if you if you politicize that to the extent that you say nobody can speak for anybody else, then you get into a mess because what we what we need to say is that. Nobody can speak for anybody who doesn't have a voice. And, in a sense, this is where it gets sticky with animals. Of course they don't have a voice. That is their being. They don't use language as we do. Uh, so to what extent can we speak for them? To a very limited extent. On the other hand, you don't have to get like the behavior science scientists and <laughs> say that because we don't understand their feelings, they don't have any, you know, because we don't understand how they think. They don't think. Uh, or even to say with Wittgenstein, if a lion could talk, we wouldn't understand him. I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, but all we can do is imagine our way into the other and be very, very, very careful at every step that we are not co-opting that other and um, just taking it over and putting our uh, voice where we're trying to imagine what its voice is or would be. Oh, it's, it's one of these things where eternal, eternal vigilance is required. And you put forth Charles L. McNichols' Crazy Weather as a relatively successful uh, attempt at imagining I the did. other. I did, and I was taking a deliberate risk there because, I mean, I know how the Indians feel about the whites speaking for them, and, and they are absolutely justified in every respect. And yet I picked this book, which is a white man, uh, writing in the person not of an Indian— He's a boy um, who's been brought up by the Mojave. As I, I have to assume, to some extent, McNichols was. He, he couldn't have known it that well. He, he just couldn't have talked from inside that way. Um, and since the book has an introduction uh, by an Indian grandmother totally approving and so on. I kind of felt that he, 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 he did it right. He did it 
carefully and without co-opting. Um, and that it is a marvelous uh, way for a, a it's it's about young people, so it it can be a young adult book or an adult book. The Mojave are a people very very different from the uh, white Americans of today, and just this the 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 sense of you are in touch with something really different and completely human and extremely understandable emotionally. You know, uh, that's that's one of the great things novels do. Mm-hmm. One of the sections of Words of My Matter are your introductions to a variety of different books and also notes on different writers. And we learn some interesting biographical facts about you in the process of reading these introductions. For instance, that you were in the same high school and graduating class as Philip K. Dick, um, that you refused your Nebula Award in the 1970s as a protest against the science fiction writers of America revoking Stanislaw Lem's honorary membership because of Cold War politics. And then they award the the award that year to Isaac Asimov, I think you mentioned. Um, my my was award. A, my who, award went to Isaac Asimov. Who's a Cold War, who was a Cold Warrior. <laughs> yes. um, Served me right for being <laughs> self-righteous, I guess. But uh, I, I was hoping we could talk about Jose Saramago, who who reappears over and over in this book about his importance to you in particular. Um, we get notes about him as a writer, and we get several book reviews. Um, and you say that he's the only novelist of your generation who you still learn from. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your ongoing engagement with his his body of work? Well, it all began with, I believe, with the poet Naomi Raplansky, who is now 99, uh, lives in New York, and whom I got to know as a sort of pen pal. And Naomi was reading one of Saramago's novels and, and, and told me, you know, uh, in our pen pal email conversation, this, this is great, you've got to read it. It was his novel Blindness. So I, I got a copy because I, I obey Naomi, and uh, it scared me to death. I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't read it. It was so frightening it, and it was extremely difficult to read because there's no paragraphing and very little punctuation. Uh, it is made almost, well, as if it were deliberately slowing you down or, or something. And so I kind of backed off, but I thought, okay, I can feel there's something here. I really have to find out. So I sort of went and I got some more Saramago, and I just gave put myself through a course of... Jose Saramago. Uh, now, this is all within the last 10 or 15 years, I guess, 10, 12 years, I don't know. Um, so this is very late in my life. Um, he's not very far ahead of me. I guess I was. he was maybe 10 years older than me. So he's writing all this. He started writing novels very late in his life, and he was still writing in his 70s and 80s. And that's not only impressive, but uh, uh, well, good news to me. You know, you don't have to stop. So I, I had a, I, I invested a lot in Sarah Margaret, and it paid off tremendously. He is not an easy writer. 
partly because of his idiosyncratic uh, punctuation and paragraphing and so on. And you just have to allow him that. I still don't quite understand why he does it. But I have to figure that any artist that good knows. He, he knew why he did it. Uh, and he just, he's, you know, he was very far left. He, he's a, a Marxist, uh, not a devout Marxist, but, but uh, he was a socialist. He, he was always against the dictatorship in his own country, Portugal. Um, and always against the heavy, heavy hand of the Catholic Church there. Um, and he just was steadfastly a, a, a far leftist, a man of extreme moral sensitivity and terrific sympathy with uh, all kinds of underdogs, including women and dogs. Uh, so, you know, he he kind of, he won my heart is what happened. And I just, uh, oh boy, the Nobel Committee did their, they did a, a peach of a choice that time because I never would have heard of him. Most of us wouldn't have. He's, being Portuguese is damnation as a writer, you know. Uh, it takes uh, a lot to, to, to get you out of writing a minor language. We might because he was he's was always translated in Spanish immediately. I think he might slowly have come to notice, but I'm just I'm I'm happy they Nobelled him. We we've talked before about your book reviews, and I I think they're particularly interesting um, for writers and aspiring writers because they become lessons in different areas of craft. And I think of your reviews, particularly of David Mitchell's Bone Clocks and China Mieville's Embassy Town, and also Curtis Settenfeld's uh, latest book, as particularly memorable in this regard. And you definitely don't pull your t your punches in your reviews, but <laughs> but one thing I noticed that particularly gets your goat is is when writers who are not from the world of science fiction and fantasy do a poor job with regards to acknowledging or understanding the tropes of the genre. And I particularly think there of your review of Cormac. McCarthy's The Road and Chang Wei Li's On Such a Full Sea as two recent examples. But I, I didn't actually review The Road. Oh, you didn't? I just I took a crack at it <laughs> <laughs> while reviewing Chang Wei Li. Yeah. Okay. And what are some of the, so, so what are some of the common pitfalls or particular annoyances that you have with writers when they um, dabble in science fiction and <laughs> fantasy from outside the genre? Um, what is it that ultimately ends up often irking you about it. They haven't read any science fiction. They have no idea really what it can do and what it's about. And so they, what tends to happen is that they laboriously reinvent the wheel. They, they get an idea, uh, you know, which is a commonplace in science fiction. It has been worked over a thousand times and and, and worked over with all kinds of literary variations, you know, and everything that the literary professors love to follow. But because science fiction was not taught as literature, they don't know that. And so they take this old, well-worn idea and sort of bring it forth with, look, look, this wonderful idea I had. Mm. Aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> 
you, you had a reverse scenario when you were reviewing Margaret Atwood's The Year of the Flood. Atwood is a writer you greatly admire, and mm-hmm. she's considered one of the great living science fiction writers. But she herself insists that she doesn't write science fiction. And you felt like this insistence put some constraints on you on how you could approach a review of the book. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about this challenge for you of, of assessing Atwood's work in this review, um, given and, maybe a difference in the way you would classify her work and the way she's classifying her work? Well, she, she, ex, she accepts her work from being science fiction because she defines science fiction very narrowly. Science fiction to her is is really more fantasy. It's things that that can't happen on Earth, and things that are not happening on Earth. Uh, and that's just not, you know. Uh, I'm sorry, Maggie, but that's not that doesn't define science fiction. A, a lot of it is very much about uh, what's happening on Earth right now. Um, it often extrapolates a little from that and really that's that's what her science fiction does she takes the way things are going particularly sort of politically on earth and extrapolates it a bit into the future and says oh my god this is going to be like this which is pretty dire um but that's an that's just an old science fiction uh technique that's it's what a lot of science fiction i i I don't know why she doesn't want her books called science fiction. I mean, I can. It's not too hard to imagine some of the reasons. Uh, one of them is that her publishers absolutely didn't want them called that because that would make her a genre writer, and um, she wouldn't sell as well. But uh, Margaret Atwood is far too bright and complicated a person to to be motivated by anything that crass. Um, but it does make for a considerable discomfort sometimes in our sort of ongoing conversation as writers who like each other. Hmm. Uh, you know, because I, I just insist that, yeah, when I write science fiction, I know what it is, and I know when I'm writing it. And I'm not going to have it called anything else. Uh, but that also would go, when I'm not writing science fiction, I don't want it called science fiction. Just because I'm a science fiction writer doesn't mean that everything I write is science fiction. So these these categories are very, very important to me, personally. And that, that makes for a... I'm always kind of on thin ice trying to review Atwood. Yeah. But it's always interesting. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> Maybe this is a good time to have you read on serious literature. Um, it's on page 45. Okay. Oh... <laughs> think what it was <laughs> okay well it, it's a it comes from a review this piece uh, is a response to a review by Ruth Franklin in Slate in, in May of 2007 and she wrote of the book she was reviewing Michael Chabon has spent considerable energy trying to drag the decaying corpse of genre fiction out of the shallow grave where writers of serious literature abandoned it. Something woke her in the night. This is me now, responding. Something woke her in the night. Was it steps she heard coming up the stairs, somebody in wet 
training shoes, climbing the stairs very slowly. But who? And why wet shoes? It hadn't rained. There again, the heavy, soggy sound. But it hadn't rained for weeks. It was only sultry. The air close with a cloying hint of mildew or rot, sweet rot like very old Finocchiona or perhaps liverwurst gone green. There again, the slow, squelching, sucking steps and the foul smell was stronger. Something was climbing her stairs, coming closer to her door. As she heard the click of heel bones that had broken through the rotting flesh, she knew what it was. But it was dead, dead. God damn that, Shabon, dragging it out of the grave where she and the other serious writers had buried it to save serious literature from its polluting touch. The horror of its blank, pustular face, the lifeless, meaningless glare of its decaying eyes. What did the fool think he was doing? Had he paid no attention at all to the endless rituals of the serious writers and their serious critics? the formal expulsion ceremonies, the repeated anathemata, the stakes driven over and over through the heart, the vitriolic sneers, the endless solemn dances on the grave. Did he not want to preserve the virginity of Yaddo? Had he not even understood the importance of the distinction between sci-fi and counterfactual fiction? Could he not see that Cormac McCarthy, although everything in his book except for the wonderfully blatant use of an egregiously obscure vocabulary, was remarkably similar to a great many earlier works of science fiction about men crossing the country after Holocaust, could never be <laughs> back, to, back to Cormac McCarthy, could never under any circumstances be said to be a sci-fi writer because Cormac McCarthy was a serious writer and so, by definition, incapable of lowering himself to commit genre. Could it be that Chabon, just because some mad fools gave him a Pulitzer, had forgotten the sacred value of the word mainstream? No, she would not look at the thing that had squelched its way into her bedroom and now stood over her reeking of rocket fuel and kryptonite creaking like an old mansion on the moors in a weathering wind, its brain rotting like a pear from within, dropping little gray cells through its ears. But its call on her attention was somehow imperative, and as it stretched out its hand to her, she saw on one of the half-putrefied fingers a fiery golden ring. She moaned. How could they have buried it in such a shallow grave and then just walked away, abandoning it? Dig it deeper, dig it deeper, she'd screamed, but they hadn't listened to her. And now, where were they, all the other serious writers and critics, when she needed them? Where was her copy of Ulysses? All she had on her bedside table was a Philip Roth novel she'd been using to prop up the reading lamp. She pulled the slender volume free and raised it up between her and the ghastly golem but it was not enough. Not even Roth could save her. The monster laid its squamous hand on her, and the ring branded her like a burning coal. Genre breathed its corpse breath in her face, and she was lost. She was defiled. She might as well be dead. 
She would never, ever get invited to write for Granta now. <laughs> I just adore that piece, Ursula. That it's must pretty have been mean, so, isn't it? <laughs> must have been so fun to write. Oh, it was. It was. Yes. Revenge is sweet. <laughs> it <But> was. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Between the Covers again today. Thank you for having me. We are talking today to Ursula K. Le Guin, the author most, most recently of Words Are My Matter from Small Beer Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.